If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Let's get one to you. We are in the book of uh, of Second Corinthians. Uh, if you're if you're kind of new here, then it's important for you to know that we are um, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through Scripture. And what that means is that we cannot just sort of say, well, we're going to do like a 65-week thing on tithing or, you know, we're going to spend the next 25 years on spiritual gifts or whatever, unless it's in the text. And so please understand, if you came here tonight, and because this text may be a little bit more pointed in one of those directions, um, if you think that this is what we talk about every week, if what you mean by that is the Bible, then I would say yes. If what you're saying is, well, what topically, well, again, we don't pick topics, this, the scripture does. So with all of that said, let's, um, let's take a look at our text. We may go through two full chapters because the theme is the same for both. So I'm not really sure yet. Um, we'll see how far we get. But we are starting in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So read along with me if you would as we start that. Moreover, brothers, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Now, so we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I'm testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through your, through, sorry, that, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but you must also complete the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to desire it, so there may also be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance may also supply your lack, that there may be equality. As it is written, and he quotes now from Exodus 16:18. But he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches, and not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift which is administered to us or by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show your ready mind, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift in which he administered by us, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence in which we have for you. 
Now, if anyone inquires about Titus, he's my partner, my fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, their messengers, that's the word angelos, like we get the word angels, of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore, show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of your boasting on our behalf. Let's end there for a moment and go to prayer. Lord, I thank you for the privilege of this time and what you're going to do in it. Lord, I know that we, we may come from very different places, all of us. You know, some maybe with some biblical experience, some with no knowledge whatsoever, and that's okay in all cases. More than just head knowledge, we come tonight to interface with you, to understand you better and your call on us and your, uh, on your lives. Lord, to better know your love for us. So tonight, Lord, have your way. We commit this night to you and just pray, Lord, that you would be glorified. That, Lord, that you would cause your scripture to burst open and come alive and that every one of us would get it, no matter where we are. And if there be any who have yet to say yes to you, let tonight be their night. May we all leave here saying yes to you. Put that readiness and willingness upon our hearts, I pray. As we commit this night to you, minister to us now in every second. Jesus, in your name, amen. I would say tonight as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. It's never about a guy with a mic, no matter how fancy or whatever he may speak or eloquent or whatever. The scripture has been tried and proven, and it's supposed to be the thing for which all things are tested. Know this book so that when someone comes out barking nonsense, you can smell it a mile away. I've heard, at least with the American Treasury, I'm unaware here, that when somebody works for the forfeiting, the forgery department, those that sort of sniff out counterfeits, that they don't lock them in a room full of all kinds of counterfeits, but rather lock them in a room with the genuine articles. Because the more familiar you are with the genuine articles, the easier it will be to spot a counterfeit. Well, might I say the same? So don't just believe what I say, but search the scriptures. Take the word for it. And search the scriptures truly to know what you believe. Here's our context for this. If you've never, if, if you like, haven't been to church for a long time, or every time you do, you think that all they talk about is money, and you're like, oh no, here we go again. Well, let's get context to this so we can understand what's going on. Uh, there was a guy who, by the way, at one point was a Christian killer. He was, he was very, very religious, but very anti-Christian. I mean, in the simplest sense. He was raised in a Jewish environment. He, was got, he went to the best of Jewish schools. He, had, he was basically the valedictorian. He had raised far beyond his contemporaries. And he thought that the way of really proving his dedication to his Judaism was to stamp out what they thought was the cult of Christianity. And that is what people thought in those days. In those days, it wasn't called Christianity. It was called the way. It's a text from Jesus in John 14, 6, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one becomes to the Father except through me. And so in the midst of trying to do this, and he had gathered up his posse, he had really gone for it, and he was really effective. He was pulling women and men and children out of their homes, either telling them to deny Christ or to be arrested, and in many cases beaten and killed. On his way with his posse, he heads almost 120 miles north to the area of Damascus, Syria. 
where he has a group of people waiting for him there to go and stamp this thing out even in Syria. And on his way, he meets this Jesus he was convinced was dead. Now, at that point, you really only have two conclusions to make. One, you've gone completely mental, you're a nutter, and you're delusional. It's an option. Or number two, he's for real and you need to deal with him. Praise God, Paul went with the second. But now his whole life has changed because at this point now, Paul has to figure out what in the world does he do with his entire life as he knows it. Now, please hear me, beloved. What Paul does, we all need to do. He just had the benefit of realizing it earlier. Not a single one of us that comes to Christ should expect Jesus to redecorate your life, to slap a new coat of paint on and make your life a little prettier. You are not a bare Christmas tree and Jesus came with tinsel. Jesus came to reinvent every one of us. And when we hand ourselves over to him, we hand ourselves over to him for the purpose of him doing so. Here's the problem. Even the people who hate themselves the most usually at least have one or two things they don't want touched. They're like, they'll be like, I hate everything about me. But if God says, can I have everything? Usually it's like, well, you can have most. But these things I'm kind of like, well, I thought you hated everything. Well, in all honesty. But he wants to change everything. And what Paul realized is that everything in his life was a lie. Could you imagine coming to that conclusion that everything in your life is a lie? All of them chasing after power and money and fame and importance and all of the things and purpose really got you nowhere. I mean, once you get it, you realize you're just as empty or more than before because now you feel like a mutant because you got what everyone else is supposed to say makes you happy and you're not happy. You feel more empty. Somehow it's not filling the hole. So Paul then tries his new ministry. What he tries to do is he was a gifted debater, an arguer, which, by the way, can I just say scripturally, God never encourages the debate, the argument method, the intimidation method. Nobody gets argued into heaven and stays there, so to speak. But Paul tries it because that's what he was good at. He was good at twisting you into a mental pretzel, so why not try it now and just add a little bit of Jesus into it? But I remind you, Jesus is not the side dish. He comes to take the whole thing over. And what happens is, is he gets a lot of people all twisted, and he gets them twisted in the way to be like, yo, 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 got it twisted, where they want to kill him. So he flees, and then he flees, and he flees, and they finally dump him off where he came from, all the way back in the southern east corner of Turkey, where he was actually born. And there he remains anonymous for a handful of years. But imagine, because those of us who read scripture about this guy that we know of as Paul, know the guy's going to write so many of the books of the New Testament. The guy's going to be so prolific and he's going to be so profound in his ministry. But he doesn't know that yet. The guy hasn't read the script. He hasn't lived it. So there he is, trying to fry fish, flip burgers, work at an MOT. Not that those are jobs any less important than any others, especially for me. Notice two of the three of them involve food. But he's trying to live a kind of a normal life with this crazy, extraordinary calling on his life. But for the purpose of it, we'll say that this time he's making tents. We'll know that later on he's called a tent maker by train. And all of a sudden, 200 miles north of Jerusalem, this new thing starts. Now, it's different from all of the other quote-unquote Christian churches because they were predominantly Jewish. In fact, they were almost exclusively Jewish in most cases. And this particular one, well, they're starting to open up the doors a little wider with the idea is anyone can come as they are 
And that will be, if God grants us a marquee, chances are that's what we'll say is, come as you are, leave as he is. You can come as you are, but God doesn't. He loves you too much not to take you the way you are, but he loves you way too much to leave you that way. And with that, this church starts to explode, and now they're looking and going, you know what we're missing is a Bible teacher. And we've got a bunch of people excited about Jesus, and so what you have is a whole bunch of ignitions and no steering wheel. Well, who do we find? And there's this guy, Barney. Well, Barnabas, but for the purpose of this. I love you. You love me. And he's very much like that. He's Mr. People Person. Now, he isn't purple or dinosaur that I'm aware of. He's just a human being. But they call him son of encouragement. Mr. Encouragement. And he goes, there was this guy I knew way back when. And he was really gifted in Scripture. I mean, he he was arguable a bit. He likes to argue, but he really knew his stuff. I'm going to go find him. Now, way back, believe it or not, there was a day before Google. There was a day even before the Yellow Pages. And this guy's got to go knock on doors on the southeast corner of Turkey to try to find this guy, and he does. He brings him back to this church, and the guy becomes one of the pastors there for this, for a year. So there, while he's there for a year, ministering to these people, they're fasting and praying, and the Holy Spirit speaks. Now, if you're new to the whole idea of a walk with Christ, that probably sounds rather spooky since probably all of your spiritual knowledge comes from Hollywood. But the very voice of God speaks to people and says, set apart this guy and Barney, by the way, because I have a special ministry for the two of them. And you know what they did? They continued to fast and pray. And they sent him out. Barney is actually from the island of Cyprus, so that's the first place they go. And now they become, in essence, our first prolific ministry uh, missionaries. They head out and they start sharing from the east side to the west side of Cyprus and then head up north to the area of Turkey. As they walk through that area, they're sharing Jesus with everyone going through crazy places, the Pisidia Antioch Highlands, which is known for just sort of robber's den, the whole bit, but they do. Paul gets beat within inches of his life, but he shares Jesus everywhere and then winds up back at that church in Antioch that sent him and kind of gives a report. Then he winds up on trip number two. He will take ultimately four trips that we have recorded in Scripture. The fourth one gets him in prison in Rome. On the second trip, he goes beyond Turkey, which again is the Middle East, where he gets a vision of a Macedonian man, which gets him into Europe, which we can be thankful for, because that is the beginning of how the gospel gets to us here in London. And while he's on that particular trip, he winds up in this place called Corinth. Now, Greece was broken up in essence into two parts. Sort of, if you really think about it, it's in essence really kind of like almost the shape of, well, I, I could say Florida, but it's almost the shape of Italy without, but, but stump foot in essence. And, you know, and, and the idea of it is the lower part of it would be the area, by the way, that they would call Achaia. And the northern area that sort of branches off this way would be called Macedonia. To this day, Greece is called the lowest part, and the northern part is still called Greece, but they still call it Macedonia today, just south of Bosnia. And as Paul travels through that land and makes his way to Corinth, he plants a church, spends a year and a half there. He spends quite a bit of time. The church, the Corinthians, by the way, the, the, the culture of Corinth, and forgive me for the lengthy intro, but it makes perfect sense for where we're at in all this. Corinth was the place known for decadence. Matter of fact, Homer would actually use the term Corinthian, and when he does, it speaks of a person with no morals. We have no place necessarily like that today 
But there are places we could hint at where if someone were to say, I'm going to go alone to Vegas, you go, why Vegas? Or I'm going to head to Amsterdam for a night. Or I'm going to head to Phuket for a night in Thailand. And you normally don't think, oh, that person's probably going to go and do something nice there. Well, you would hope. So to call someone a Corinthian was actually an insult, unless you were proud of your lack of morals. So when Paul heads into, you know, into, you know, sin town, sin city of the day, Paul starts to share and people get saved. And a church is planted. But the church has a real hard time separating from the world around it. And it becomes the church of tolerance. Now, please, please hear me in this. God has called us to be tolerant of personality, not sin. And the church had got it in backwards. They were completely tolerant of sin, but intolerant of personality. So what happened is they, they, had a real, they didn't have a problem with you doing anything wrong because that gave them the idea that they could do it too. But if you did something wrong against them, well, then they really freaked out. So a guy's sleeping with his mom or his stepmom, and the church is applauding their tolerance of the whole thing, but Christians are suing each other. And Paul flips out, and in essence writes a letter as a result of that, and that's our first Corinthian letter. But while all of this is happening, by Acts chapter 11, before Paul had even gotten that far, there was a prophet named Agabus. You'll read about him a couple times in the book of Acts. Agabus is the show-and-tell prophet. Every time he sort of shows up, it's like charades with the guy. He doesn't just speak and mantle flies. And this is one of those cases. And in 11.28, it tells us Agabus came, stood up, and showed by the Spirit. Now, how he showed it, it doesn't tell us. That there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world. Which happened, by the way, the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers dwelling in Judea, which is where Jerusalem is located. And so thus they also did, and sent it by the elders, by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So understand, on Paul's first trip that he had done, there was a prophet that shows up, and I don't know how he shows it, but there is this famine, he tells everyone, that's going to happen. And listen, the church's response to that is, well, the church there is going to be in need. Let's help them out. Not just the people, but the church was going to be in need. So the people decided, let's take a collection specifically for the purpose of helping out the churches in Judea so they could help out the rest of the people in Judea. That's the idea here. It tells us, by the way, in 1 Corinthians, as Paul writes to them, chapter 16, and if you're in your Bibles, go ahead and flip back there just to see this. It says in 1 Corinthians 16, 1, now concerning the collection of the saints, as I have given orders to the churches in Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay aside something, storing up as he may prosper, but there, there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whoever is approved of you by letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it's fitting that I go also, well, they can come with me. In Romans 15:26, it says that it pleased those from Macedonia... That's, again, that's Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Anachia, that's the area of Athens and Corinth, to make certain contributions to the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. So get the idea, all of a sudden, amongst all of the other things that Paul is doing, he is actually helping collect for people that are in need somewhere where a tragedy is hit. And that's how this whole thing plays out. 
Now think about the tragedies that have hit in the last 10 years. It wasn't that long ago, if you think about it, maybe a little more than 10 years, where a massive earthquake hit, which caused a tsunami, which flooded the entire south coast of Thailand. Never, don't forget about Haiti and the horrible earthquake that took place there. If we think back far enough, we can think of what took place when the levee broke in Louisiana, New Orleans. How do people respond to these things? How does the church respond? Can I just say, and I'm going to just call it as it is, it is a lazy thing to, tro- to toss a pound in a coffers jar not concerning about where it goes. Sometimes we can do that to appease our own, confidence, our own conscience because we know something bad's happening, so we just toss it and I feel better because I've given something to somewhere. Who knows where it goes? But I can tell you from, well, in complete confidence and from experience that there are some of those organizations that are out there, none that are Christian, mind you, but some that I'm very well acquainted with that, have, that 92% to 98% of what they make goes to administrative bills to paying the guys that actually shovel the other 2% into the, peak, into the places. Now, there are other ministries where 100% goes. But please hear me in this. This was not one of these where Paul was, was sort of skimming off the top of an executive fee. So let's say, as we as a church, we are in a position one of these days where, there, where a need arises. And when the need arises, how do we respond to it? The same way. We seek to bless the church in that troubled area. That's what you do. And as you seek to bless the church, then as a town is rebuilt, and we can tell you stories about the southern coast of Thailand, about rebuilding an entire city. We can tell you the stories about places in Africa where famine and drought have hit, in Tanzania, in Kenya, in Nigeria. Malawi. We can tell you about places that, what happened in Haiti or in Afghanistan. Where when a church with godly men gets the resources during a crisis moment, revival starts to take place. Well, we could toss it to other people and think, well, they're going to spend it, but what happens when the church actually does something with it? Notice, by the way, I'm not saying that the church that had the money spends it on themselves. But what happens is we get this sense, by the way, of this cool, universal or global mindset for Christ. Well, you realize, my brothers here could really benefit from this, and I think this could radically touch them. That's the concept that we're dealing with. As a matter of fact, what Paul had said in that, 1 Corinthians 16, is that he said, here's the deal, we'll take this collection, you guys handle it before I get there, because so, I don't want to freak you guys out. I don't want this to be the kind of situation where, you know, where I have to get there and I'm like, hey you guys, Paul never endorsed the passing of a hat. Paul never did. He said, set it aside before that and have it ready. Because I don't want it to be awkward. Paul understood the weirdness. And I'm not trying to diss another church. But Paul understood the weirdness that happens when a a tray or something is handed to you and you're like, oh, I feel like I should. But not because you felt like you should until that thing landed in your lap. Now you just feel like socially, if you don't put something in there, everyone's going to stand up and go, oh, look over there. 
And can I say, as a result of that, we will never pass a hat here. We have a box in the back. A box in the back is where it stays for the same idea. Set it aside. Put it there between you and God. Don't blow a trumpet. Don't everyone go, hey, check out this. That's never the point. The point is, if you want to give, you can give. But look at it. It's between you and the Lord. And just you need to know, by the way, for what it's worth. And I always feel like I have to apologize the moment we start talking about money. I don't know why that is. But I don't even see who gives what. So if I'm nice to you, it's because I'm nice to you. You need to know that. If I'm talking to somebody and you walk by and I say hi, but I'm in conversation, then I don't turn around and give you a giant hug for that moment. It isn't because I checked and you didn't tithe last week. I may just be in conversation with someone that's important. So understand, when Paul is checking up on them, there was this movement in Corinth to go and help these church, this church out in, in Judea that has now been famine-stricken. And then as it started, now Paul realizes that he's like, you know what, you guys, we need to take this a step farther. Let's finish the job. Let's get this taken care of, and let's handle this. Does that make sense? So this was not Paul, by the way, doing a telethon. This was not Paul doing one of those things that if less we have $2,000 champions, we're going to lock the doors and you're not leaving. That stuff, according to Scripture, seems to be an abomination, by the way. It's my brother who showed me, by the way, when there was a guy that was on television that says, you know, one of those, they call it seed faith things. And, and please forgive me, but I'm just going to, I just, I, you know me, I'm, I'm just not really good at dancing around a point. Um, and the guy was like, look, if he, and of course, they always have to talk like this by that point. And if you give, God's going to give you back a hundredfold. So in other words, this is like the lottery, but the chances are better. So let's see if I have that right. If I give a thousand dollars, I'll get a hundred thousand back. Oh, because God's going to bless it. He's going to pack it down and shove it up and all that stuff and come and run over the top. If you just send it in faith, God's going to give it to you. And then a month later, the guy went up and says, you know what? We can't pay our bills here. And unless you give enough, we're going to go off the air. And my brother said, if that guy believed what he said, he'd be mailing us checks, getting a hundred percent back or whatever, hundred percent back, and he'd be able to pay his bills. And the point's simple. We're going to see if we actually get to it by next chapter. God does not, is not blessed by you having to do something and doing it because you have to do it. Now, he is in the sense of submission, a submission to authority, but if you do it with an unwilling heart, God's not blessed by that. So look at it with me as we walk through the chapter a bit. First of all, and it starts, by the way, with the idea that the Macedonians, and I can remind you, this is Corinth, so that's the southern area. Macedonia is the north. It tells us that the Macedonians have actually been a really good example. It tells us in verse 1, Moreover, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Again, that's Thessalonica, that's Philippi, that's Berea. And it says that a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty, abounded in the riches of their liberality. Now, in other words... These people came so poor they couldn't help but give. How strange of a thought is that? Now, by the way, for what it's, mo- what it's worth, Macedonia was the birthplace of Alexander the Great. Does anyone know what kingdom Alexander the Great represented? Greece. And then, I don't know if you were just holding out to make sure. We have Greeks here. I was just checking. So when the Romans came in after the Greeks, they really wanted to show that they really dominated Greece. So when they went to Macedonia, Alexander the Great's birthplace, they looted it. They took everything to show Rome was more powerful. So Macedonia was was ransacked. They were very poor. And in that poverty, by the way, 
You would think that all they do is have a pity party, which, by the way, you're aware of the fact when you have a pity party, nobody wants to come. And interestingly enough, in that, the people, it sounded to me like what happened is, is in that, the stripping away of all of this luxury gave them a desire actually to care for others. I wonder if that has to happen to me. Well, God has to strip away some of the luxuries of life just so that I'll care for other people. If I don't want to sit and talk with somebody on a train platform because I don't have a place to go, but I want to make sure I catch the next train to Hyde Barnet, I've got an issue. Or because I see the train coming and I'm sure there's an empty seat, but there may not be on the next one. Yet I pride myself in thinking that I'm actually young. What am I doing? How can I put stuff before people? And that's the point here. Interesting, during this particular time, Corinth, on the other hand, has started to make quite a bit of money. So Corinth is actually a bit rolling in it, where Macedonia was quite impoverished. So when Paul writes to Corinth, he's like, listen, guys, these poor people up here are really going for it. And I'm not saying that to condemn you. What I'm saying that is to encourage you that other people are doing that. Let's, um, let's encourage you to follow through as well. In 1 Thessalonians, when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, again, in the area of Macedonia, he says in verse 14, You became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea of Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your countrymen as they did from theirs, from the Judeans. So these poor guys in Judea were not only famine-stricken, but they were also getting picked on for their faith in Christ. Verse 3 says, I bear witness according to their ability. Again, that's the Macedonians. Yes, and even beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Now, please understand, these people in Macedonia were begging Paul to take stuff so they could get there. Could you imagine? Please, don't rob us the blessing of being able to minister to these people in need. Notice it tells us, and this is going to be sort of our theme through all of this, that they were freely willing in verse 3. Beyond their ability. In Luke, some of you are familiar with it, in chapter 21, Jesus points out of all the people who have ever given in the treasury of the temple, Jesus only highlights one of them. And the one that he highlights was a widow who gives two coins that are called mites. Today, by the way, if you go to Israel, everyone will tell you they have the two widow's mites. Like, how in the world could you know that? What's even better yet is some of them are made out of lead or aluminum, aluminum, which, of course, wasn't a common metal in those days. The mites, by the way, are just tiny little coins. They're about this, honestly, the best way to describe them is they're about the size of a button on a shirt. And they're made out of copper. So they're worth then that much weight of, in copper. They're in essence about a penny. So understand when Jesus gives this, the point is not that the gal had given so much monetarily. And that has never been God's concern. And what Jesus says as a result of it in verse 3 he says this, Truly I say to you that this poor widow was given more than everyone else, but she only gave two mites. 
For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings to God, but she out of her poverty put in her livelihood. This gal in her devotion actually gave what she kind of needed. And that becomes the point here. There was a song written not that long ago called Almost Everything. It's one of those cries that I, that I can't help but do. Well, the whole idea of the song is, it seems like no matter how much you give me, God, I always wind up giving you almost everything. And in it, it says, this is so much less than sacrifice from necessity. Dismiss all my compromise and take it all away. And the point again is, I'm looking and going, have I ever really given to God that which ever has really costed me anything? And the story of King David, when he goes to buy then the threshing floor of Aruna, where ultimately the temple will be built. David's the king. He shows up. The guy looks and he says, you're the king. Just take the land, man. Loose paraphrase. Again, search it out on your own. And David's response is one of my favorite lines in Scripture, if you will. It's like if the whole Bible were a movie and you're quoting certain lines, that's one of my lines. I will not give to God that which costs me nothing. I love the line, but I am very guilty of being the opposite, of giving very little and thinking to God I've handed him the universe. Well, what's missing? And here's where all the pressure starts to drop, beloved, verse 5. The dance is a two-step. Not only as we had hoped, but notice that they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. You see, the problem is if you just give yourself to people for God, then what happens is that the people dictate what you're to give. And you're probably aware of the fact you probably aren't going to be enough. No matter how many people, once it takes, all it takes is one needy person, and one needy person needs more than, more than one person, no matter how great they are. But you know, if you're kind of the person where you have that sense of moral character, you feel guilty when you're like, I'm sorry, I can only give you a half hour, and I know you need like 23 hours straight. You're on a crack high, and you're not going to sleep for about three days. What we could do is we could give ourselves to people for God and think we're serving God with it. But what Scripture tells us what we should do is give ourselves to God for people. When I give myself to the Lord, I ask, Lord, what do you have for me today? And, you know, the moment that happens, you can get humble enough to know you're probably aware of the fact you're not the Savior of the world, right? You're aware of that? You're not the Savior of any human being? Are you aware of that? You know, the same way that the hose cannot put out fire in and of itself, but it can be used to disperse water. You can take that hose and whip it around as many times as you want, throw it in the middle of the fire, it will melt. But if it's properly attached and properly used, it could be used to put out many fires. But the hose in and of itself is a vehicle. We could get so caught up in trying to serve people 
that we don't even listen to the voice of God anymore. Many, there are many of us, we may not even know what it's like to even hear the voice of God. No, I'm not just telling you like, hey, for some, God may peel off your roof and just sit on the edge of your bed, and he could do that if he wants to. But God knows how to speak fluent you. For some, he could speak to you right in the middle of a song that doesn't even have anything to do with him. And by, by the way, I've heard those testimonies, have you? I mean, I've heard people that were like, they weren't sure what to do when God spoke to them in a commercial. The side of a bus. And I'm not just talking about they got hit by it. Like, which direction do I get? They get hit, and they're like, well, I guess you're going that direction. And you know, it's, it's, what's funny is they'll listen to people kind of talk to each other because they get jealous of each other. Because this person's like, well, the Lord just spoke to my heart. And they're like, how is that? I don't know what that's like. Oh, my goodness. Well, your, ear, your heart have ears? Come on, what's wrong with you? Are you delusional? What is it? You know, but well, and then like, but then like, you know, but for me, it's like, I didn't know, should I go to China or not? And then it said, go to China on a billboard in front of me. It's like, God didn't speak to your heart, but he knew that's the way. And it's like, well, why did God speak to you that way? Because that's the way you hear. And if you're listening to music, he may speak to you there. If you're watching TV, he may speak to you there. I highly recommend, by the way, that you read Scripture because he will always speak to you there. And by the mouth of two or more witnesses, don't just be one of those people that get so flighty pants that you're just like, oh, man, just anything. You know, I ate, I ate pizza, had a weird dream, and I just feel like I'm called now to, you know, you know how that goes. They gave themselves first to God. This was the Macedonians, I remind you, who had been ransacked that had been abused for their faith, and they gave themselves to God, and God says, here, this is what I have for you. And they're like, yes, Lord. And the point is, I remind you, the term is willing, freely willing in verse 3. So what did he do? What did Paul do? He sent Titus. So we urged Titus that as he begun, so he would also complete the grace as well. Hey, Titus, go take care of these people. I mean, Macedonia says, please come and take this gift so we can give it to the Judeans. Please come and take this gift. What we'll find, by the way, is the Macedonians will also sponsor Paul's ministry, but that's an entirely different thing altogether. This one is, please, you know, Paul gets the email. It's a text on his phone, and it says, please take this gift. And so what does Paul do? Paul's in the middle of teaching. He's in the middle of ministering, and he looks, and he's got a right-hand man named Titus. And can I just tell you how awesome it is to have Titus's, Titi, Titus's, however you want to say that? Guys that you can really Look at it. It's just a guy that he trusts. And there are three areas that we talk about that pull a guy down. And I, by the way, I, I, you, this isn't my own. This is from Billy Graham. The girls, the gold, and the glory. When you can trust a guy with those, he's a Titus. And Paul had a Titus named Titus. That's how we get the name. Notice, he sends them to go get the money so that they could go and minister. And Paul doesn't doubt for a moment. It isn't like, okay, I want you to sign something that shows how much it is. And when you come back, we're going to check and we're going to count it all. And understand, there are checks and balances here. They, they do that here to make sure everything is very carefully regulated here. I just don't do it. Praise God for that. Paul also had a Timothy, I remind you, a young guy that was being raised up. But as I'm reading this, one of the things the Lord imposed upon my heart is people should enter as Timothys and, uh, and Exodus, Tituses, Titus, however you say. Where they come in and just like, you know what, I just want to learn. I just want to see what it's like. I want to be out on the, I want to be out on the field. And I can tell you guys right now that I look at it and I say, no, those are Timothys. Now, that doesn't mean check me out how I'm amazing. The point, because that's not it. The point is it's just guys you want to take with you, even if you're just walking through a, 
the stables market because someone wants to show you something, but you know there's ministry involved. And it's guys that you just want to say, look, but look at the purpose of that is you want to see them raise up to be right-hand men. And then there are other guys that, that they're your right-hand men. Last week, by the way, by God's grace, we could never have gone, my wife and I, away for a few days had it not been for the fact that we had total confidence in at least one, if not more, Tituses in our, in our fellowship. And because of that, I was confident with the one thing that means the most to me here on earth. You guys, my family. And to trust them with that is the greatest trust I can offer him. I trust them with my kids. I trust them with my wife. I trust them with anything here. I know they're human, but they're a Titus like this guy's a Titus. That like Titus is a Titus. And he says, look at as you abound in everything. I mean, look at you. I look at your faith and I'm like, which again, faith is not a fancy word. It just means trust. I see how you trust God. In your speech, I see how you speak about him. I see the knowledge that you have in scripture. I see your diligence and I see that you have love, not only for the Lord, but also for us. So I'm going to send, I sent Titus, you know all that. And then he says, look, I can't command you to give. And we'll see in the next chapter, you cannot give by compulsion. Compulsion means you are required to. It's one of the three things that we'll see next, maybe next week in that, where it's like, look, it's a required thing. You cannot give because you're required to. You give because you're willing. Remember that term? So we urged Titus. He said, look at these people. You'll see their trust. In other words, Paul's bragging about the Macedonians. And then he's bragging about the Corinthians. This church, by the way, that was really mucked up and turned the whole church into a three-ring circus, but he still says, you should see the way they trust God, and you should see the way they talk about Him, and you should see what they understand, and you should see the way that they're diligent, and you should see the way they love us. So go and take a look. So look in. As a result of that, let me compare this. So Know this, by the way. If there were some challenges, the first, by the way, is know who you give to first, because if you don't give to Christ first, all of the other giving is meaningless. Second, then, by the way, is know who you compare to, and that's in verses 8 and 9. He says, by the way, I want to remind you it's Jesus we're compared to, and Jesus had everything but you and gave everything up to get you. How important are you, and what kind of example is that? And if that's his example, never think you to man or to woman because you gave something. Let it be out of love, because when you give out of love, you don't keep score. It's one thing I've learned. So instead of giving you a commandment, verse 10, he says, I give you this advice. You started it, we'll finish it. And because you had that desire, notice in verse 11, it says that there was a readiness and a, to desire it. Well, that then be a readiness then to complete it. Verse 12, it tells us, by the way, notice, if there first is a willing mind. Let me say this. The two things we're looking for, a willing, first starts with this, a willing mind, and a ready heart. If you have a willing mind and a ready heart, you'll be at God's disposal. If you're willing and ready to Him. The blessing is in the willingness. Well, what if the Lord doesn't call upon you? You're still a blessing. If at every, and can I just say it this way, for every second, you are at that moment possessing a willing mind and a ready heart. 
you are blessing the Lord. Remember who you're giving this to first, to Him. And it may be one of those moments where someone will be a need and someone else will step up to meet it and you'll be like, well, I could have done that. And God's like, yes, so I'm going to call you to pray. Pray for that person while they're serving them. If you think the best thing that the world could possibly get is that you get cloned three million times so you can serve more people, I'm so thankful there's only one of me. You probably are too. Notice also in verse 12, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what does not have. Number four, again, remember, number one on this, again, was know who you give to first. Two is know who you compare to. Well, three, then, is have that willing mind and ready heart. And then the fourth is only give what you have. Which, by the way, that is fundamental. And this is why you'll never see us walk around with one of those credit card jobbies. And there are places like that. It's like, well, you could just give on your credit card. No, look at give what you have, not what you don't have. Which is fun because I'm quick to give like other people's stuff, <laughs> but it's not what I have. And here's the point. God is never in need of your much. He is in want of your willing heart, willing mind and ready heart. That's what he's looking for. I remind you again, Matthew fourteen seventeen, where a boy is brought up with two fish and five loaves to feed 5,000 men and their families. Now, either the boy was hot-shouldered into this or he was willing. But imagine a kid going, well, there's a lot of need here. You can have my lunch. And that's all it is, is a lunch, a kid's lunch. The fish more than likely were herring. Those are small fish. Loaves were probably barley loaves. That's what it speaks of. That's basically scones. So he's got five scones, two pieces of herring, or two little herrings, and 5,000 guys and their families. He's like, well, you can have my part. And the Lord's like, that's all I'm looking for. I wonder how many other people had things they didn't offer. I wonder how many, please hear me in this, didn't offer because they knew it wasn't enough. Have you ever done that? I couldn't possibly offer because what I have isn't enough. Well, that's okay because God's not looking for enough. He's enough. He's looking for, might I remind you, a willing mind and a ready heart. And the boys seem to possess that. For the woman who gave the two minus, God says, that's what I'm looking for. For the boy that had the two fish and the five loaves, God says, that's what I'm looking for. Nobody else in the universe would say that but him because he's the only one who could do something with it. Fill the six water pots with water. We'll take care of this wedding. Really? Sure. Transform an entire dying world? Let's send one person. That seems like a pretty small ratio. Not when the one person is God. So again, I'm not saying you should be burdened. I'm not saying that this is to be something burdensome because God says, look at my yoke is easy, my burden is light. This is not supposed to flip you out. Here's the crazy part. Holding on to what you shouldn't hold on to becomes the burden. Like the rich merchant who walked away sad because he had so much that he thought to lose, but he didn't see the value of Christ's words, come follow me. Do you realize how amazing those words are? Jesus didn't say, you're not going to go to hell now. He said, come follow me. How would you like to go on an adventure with me? 
Imagine God sitting down and saying, how would you like to go on an adventure with me? That's my whole life. This is what I'm saying. When you have more, give it. When they have more, they can give it. When someone's in need, let's take care of them. Wouldn't that be cool? By the way, first and foremost, and I challenge you to prove me wrong, wrong, but in Scripture, first and foremost, take care of your family in Christ. First and foremost. Get those people taken care of because you want those people taken care of so they can take care of everybody else. So, just like Exodus, the context of the Exodus text, by the way, verse 15 we have here, was that God laid out manna. And for those that gathered a little, it was just enough for them. For those that gathered a whole lot, it was just enough for them. So what that meant is that there were some people with bigger appetites than others, but everybody had what they needed. That was not God endorsing communism. Because communism doesn't work because for everybody to be equal, who oversees that? But notice then he starts to brag about Titus. He bragged about the Macedonians. Then he bragged about the church in Corinth. And then he brags about his right-hand man. He says, this guy really loves you guys. You know, that's one of the first things. Please hear me on this. We're, we're almost done. One of the first things we start to look for. First, by the way, is a love for Christ. A genuine love for Christ. Because he loves you and he wants to reciprocate it. But as a person starts to get infected with the love of God, they have to turn it horizontal. The second thing you start to look for is the way that they love the rest of the people in the fellowship. Because that's the kind of person that you want to see then become profile. As the kind of person that leads others to love the flock. Does that make sense? You don't want just somebody, and by the way, this is why you don't want to bring in gun, big guns and people that are, oh, I'm so gifted and all this other stuff. I don't really care how gifted you are in the beginning. God, God's the one who reminds you who's going to take care of all of that. The bigger issue is, are there people who love the flock? And I know guys that are like that, that they carry you upon their heart. And that's what a real shepherd does, is he carries his sheep upon his heart. And that's what Paul recognized in Titus. I mean, for all the things he could have said, Check out Titus, graduated with a doctorate in divinity at age 11. Check out Titus. Boy, can that guy argue soteriology or eschatology. And if you don't know what those words mean, praise the Lord. You'll know what they are without having to know fancy words that make us sound smarter than we are. Please hear me on this as we're almost done. What the church is lacking is God's view on things. And can I say, I shouldn't be surprised that the body of Christ doesn't seek to listen to the heart of God when the church is trying to get their cues from worldly business. All right, worldly business, go ahead and harvest those CVs. Check and see who's most qualified. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Because after all, what what are you trusting them with? But in church, you don't harvest CVs. You look for character. Not qualifications first. You look for character first. The problem is that demands that every one of us has to be more involved in each other. Not like poking noses in each other's business. Living life around each other. Serving each other. Do you realize how amazing that is? 
in the book of Acts when the church was almost like a commune and there were a bunch of widows that needed to be served. There were those that were traditionally Jewish. And since the church was traditionally Jewish first before they became Christian, they tended to favor them. The same way, let's say that we're actually not here, we're in Sheffield. And the church is traditionally white British. Everybody was white British, born and raised white British. We came in and there were some widows. And there were some white British widows. And there were some widows from other nationalities that had been sort of imported here. The church was favoring the white British widows. Does that make sense? And they realized that this was wrong. The complaint got to the ears of the apostles and they're like, hey, 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 this is not acceptable. We don't play faves here. So how do you solve the problem? In this case, it was the Jews versus the Grecian. Though they were still Jewish by birth, they lived a lifestyle. And traditionally, that was a little bit less traditional. So they said, you know what? Let's ask the church. Who do you know is spirit-filled? Who do you know is full of wisdom? Who do you know is of a godly character? Let's find those guys. And what's cool is that the church got to be part of it. And the reason the church got to be part of it is because the church was enough living life among each other in such a way that they kind of went, there's that guy, Stephen. Oh, yeah, it's Stephen. And other people were like, oh, Stephen, duh. He's my first choice too, Stephen. And then there's Philip. Oh, yeah, Philip. <laughs> and, you know, Nicanor. Well, whoever he is, I don't know. But we knew who, they knew who they was. You know, and there's like, and there's, and there's these guys. And of the list, what's interesting is every one of the guys' names was Greek. They were going to make sure that the Grecian widows were taken care of. But the coolest part about it wasn't that they were Greek. The coolest part about it was, is that they were not, like, they, he, Paul didn't look and he goes, like, look at How many of you have food serving experience? How many of you have worked in a restaurant? How many of you know how to make a killer falafel? How many of you can whip up a pita at a moment's notice? He didn't look at any of that. How many of you just love old people? How many of you think you will become old people? He looked and he says, give me guys that you trust. In all of the years that we've been in ministry, every guy that we've ever ordained as a pastor, everyone in the church has applauded. We've never gone, I don't know about that guy. Matter of fact, one of the things we say before that ever happens is if there's any concern for this guy, you need to let me know before we step any farther. That's that important to us. Because what I would want is for you guys to go, duh, it's about time. Not because we're being negligent or overcautious, but because we love you enough to be careful. Does that make sense? So understand the rest of this chapter, and obviously we're only getting through one chapter this week, is that Paul basically likes to brag on the guy's character. He's like, man, I just love this guy. I sent him to Macedonia, and I forgot about it. And by the way, that is a real compliment. For me, I forget about a lot of things these days, so it's not that much of a compliment like it used to be. But if you hand something to someone, it's like, look it, I want to forget about it till it's done, and then just be pleased it's done. Praise the Lord. The moment someone comes back and says, no, you need to do these six things, everything gets more complicated for me, and I forgot what it was I was supposed to do in the first place. Paul says, I'm going to send you to Macedonia. You take care of it. I'm going to forget about it. I'm going to get back to what God's called me to. He comes back, takes care of it. He's like, well, praise the Lord. By the way, he actually really loves you guys too, and he wants to take care of you, the, the Corinthians. So thanks be to God who put the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. The earnest care for you like whom? 
like Paul. See, Paul knew that when he was sending Titus to Corinth, he wasn't just sending a guy who could get the job done. He was sending a guy who could properly represent his heart. Do you know how important that is? All the Christian bands we've been, we have purposely avoided Christian labels or any record label. And one of the primary reasons is we've never seen any that we thought could adequately represent our heart for the ministry that God had called us to. Because we want to make sure you got a shadow of a doubt. you got a shadow of a doubt that what they're representing is the Lord properly as we would seek to. For not only, not only accepted the exhortation, but being even more diligent, he went on his own accord. Now, how do you go on your own accord after you've already been exhorted to do so? It's like, hey, would you pray about this? How would you like to go? And he's like, you know what? Absolutely. I'm so, you know what he is? He was so willing and he was so ready. Get it? He was willing because he was like, I just want to be used. And then he was ready. Let me tell you what could stop you from being those things. Willing, selfishness, pride, all those things. That'll keep you. Willingness, the flesh. Readiness, looking at yourself too much. It'll keep you unready. Because you're like, I will never be enough. I only think, well, what about me? What about me? God's like, stop it. Aren't you thankful that your toothbrush doesn't do that before you pick it up to brush your teeth? I don't know. I don't think I could properly get behind every spot. I'm sure there's going to be some plaque left over. It's like, look it. Just be a toothbrush. I'll move you. My job to take care of it. Well, what if I, what if I accidentally spill some of the toothpaste into the sink? Oh, that's probably going to happen. But not because of you, because of me. But not only that, and then we get to this. There are these characters, and this is one of those places where I think God gives a chance for us to be humble as teachers. But not only that, there's this guy that everybody knows, except us who are reading it, right? Let's be honest. Look at what it says. It says, and not only that, but who also was chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is administered to us by the glory of God himself, by the glory of the Lord himself, and to show of your ready mind. Notice the word ready there. Now, the ready part means there's action that's going to get involved with it. This isn't a theoretical willingness. This is now a practical readiness. Avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift. This is verse 20, which is administered by us. You get the point? He's like, Paul says, I love the fact more people are coming with because what that means is people won't think I'm awesome for giving this because I'm not the one. I'm just the vessel. I'm just the, I'm just the, the delivery boy. That's a cool thing for me. If I were the only one showing up with this, I'd look like Santa, and I don't want to do that. So I'm glad you guys are doing this. So there's another guy that's coming with, and by the way, this guy that's coming with, everybody already knows him, and I'm like, I don't. But it's great when you read these guys, by the way, of course, who smoke cigars and sit on leather couches and are theologians or whatever. And it's like, well, we obviously know who it is. No, you don't. You just don't. God did not tell us because apparently that wasn't the important thing. Sometimes he does it just to flesh out the flesh to show you, oh, this guy's just going to really look at You know who it was? This guy. That's who it was. And for them, they knew for us, we don't need to. He's not delivering us anything the moment other than the fact that he was a clearly another example of a person without a name to us but was willing and ready so apparently it wasn't a big deal for him that his name wasn't written into him may it be the same for us that may there be that humility that it doesn't have to have our name on it 
but there would be a willingness because we give ourselves first to whom? Who do we give ourselves to first? Right. And then second, to the others. We give ourselves to the Lord for others. So, providing only, not only, providing honorable things, verse 21, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we've sent with him then, this guy that everyone seems to know, we sent with them then our brother, whom we've often proven diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence in which we have in you. And who is this person they're speaking of? Well, that's Titus. If anyone asks about Titus, he's my partner. Notice Paul doesn't say, he's my assistant manager. He's my chief errand boy. There's a humility in partner. You're aware of that. Paul's like, you know what he is? He's my fellow soldier. I rub shoulders with him. He doesn't go and polish my shoes. I rub shoulders with the guy. I love that. And in the end of it all, whether you know it or not, anybody who's involved in ministry, we're partners. We all have our positions, and God will put authority in places, but with every authority comes responsibility. It's interesting because Paul still said to Titus, Titus, do you want to go? And Titus says, yes, I really do want to go. That would be awesome. And so Paul goes, well, then please go. So it sounds like Paul kind of has some form of authority in this because he's responsible to take care of this. But in the end of it, he's like, look, at this guy is not just an errand runner. This guy's my partner, man. Look at Treat him like you would treat me. That's the point here. So if anyone inquires, he's my partner and, by the way, my fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, not just them, treat them like angels. Notice it says they're messengers of the churches, or if you will, angels of the churches of the glory of Christ. And I remind you, angels aren't a species, they're an occupation. They were messengers. Same term, by the way, you'll see seven times in the book of Revelation, verses two and chapters 2 and 3. Therefore, show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and, the, and our boasting on your behalf. Paul says, look at I've talked to you guys up. Can you imagine? Now, in, in our culture, that actually is called manipulation. The manipulation is, look at I've told them really a lot about you and how great you are. Don't let me down. That sounds pretty manipulative. But in Middle Eastern culture, that's not it at all. Middle Eastern culture, I remind you, in much of the Middle East and Far East, it's about honor. And the idea is, I have given you the opportunity to exude your honor. And there are people that would rather die than lose their honor. And so please understand in that, what Paul is saying is, I have actually granted you the greatest social gift I can give, which is honor. And I've given honor to you because I know you well enough to know that's what I expect. So... Live up to that honor. What's interesting, by the way, is that people have a tendency to go and jump as low as you put the bar. I've noticed this throughout my entire life, that when you tell people that they're rotten, they actually don't have a problem fulfilling that prophecy. There was a young lady that was brought in, beautiful gal, a student, when I was teaching secondary school. She was sort of the fiancé of one of the guys that was about to graduate. He was 17. He was ready to get married. His favorite movie was Dumb and Dumber, and he could have easily been a part of it. I'm not trying to pick on him. He was just, he was like really one of those characters. He was very much like that. I mean, he just loved it. He just emulated those guys. And he called his girlfriend, fiance, girlfriend, say, whatever you want to call her. Um, he called her a whole lot of horrible names, and she was kind of known for out belching, out farting, out drinking, out smoking, out cussing, all of the boys. And she kind of came in because I'm like, well, we'll do premarital. 
I'm not going to marry you guys, but we'll do premarital. Pre, 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 premarital. But for them, it was premarital. That's what mattered. And when the girl came in, she sat in, and she just kind of came like a girl from the punk rock era in Camden with a chip on her shoulder, arms crossed, barely dressed. I kind of looked at her. And, of course, you don't want to say what's in your mind, which is, what happened to you? I mean, not in a mean way. Like, oh, my goodness, what happened? I'm like, Lord, show me what to do here. I said, you know what? I'm going to treat you like a perfect lady. I don't know if anyone's ever done that, but I'm going to treat you like a perfect lady. I'm going to drive you crazy if that's what it's going to take, but I'm going to try to give you the honor that you may never have had. Two meetings into it, her entire wardrobe changed. She actually donated almost all of her clothing and bought new clothing. And as I'm going to challenge every other person, especially this numbskull next to you, to treat you like a lady, she scrubbed up well. But for the first time in her life, she had dignity that she had never had. She certainly was never treated with dignity in her household, in her social circles. She was never treated with dignity. And the most easy thing, the most lazy thing, the least risky thing would be to treat her like everyone else did. And we know that because we can do that with each other. We can do that with people outside. But to treat people with dignity and honor, well, there's a word for it. It's grace. Because I want you to realize that's how Jesus treats us. And I came in just like that gal in many ways. And I'm like, whatever, like you have anything to say that means anything to my life and all of that. You don't realize how hard things have been. Jesus is like, you should actually check out my scars before we talk any longer. And understand, he doesn't have a problem. He's not intimidated. He won't run by the filth that we have. He looks at us with complete honor and dignity. and says, I'm taking this to the cross. I'm taking the person you hate to the cross. And if you trust in my gift at the cross, in my resurrection, you'll start to actually agree with me. You'll actually see yourself sooner or later like I did. With the dignity and honor that is fitting for the bride of the king of the universe. That is my God. And without accepting that gift, nobody's a Christian. In accepting that gift, everybody is that clean in his eyes. That's the choice you need to make if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus. I'm not asking you to join a church. I'm not funny, we talked about helping a church out that was in trouble in Judea. That's how this the sort of the subject, but it gets around to this sooner or later. And then in the end of it all, Jesus was the example. Though he had everything in heaven, the one thing that was missing was you, and you were worth the trade. So exactly how valuable do you think you really are? I'd say you're priceless. And he died on a cross so that all of your guilt could be paid for and rose again from the grave so that you could have a new life. Betrothed to him as his love 
as the object of his adoration and affection to cover you not just in mercy, but in dignity. Well, as a Titus to my great sir, my great shepherd, and I seek to be that, I'm here to offer you that if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus. If you have, my prayer is, God make us two things, willing and ready. And every moment you are, He's blessed. I warn you, don't think you're ready and then say no. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, I thank you so much for the beauty of this text, what you've done tonight. Lord, the way that you've brought us in. Lord, for everything that you're going to do tonight in our hearts, what you've already done here tonight. First of all, Lord, can I just ask your forgiveness? And I stand in the gap as a Nehemiah, including myself, but Lord, with all of these precious brothers and sisters here, to ask for your forgiveness for where we have dissed, insulted, mocked even, and loathed the object of your affection, which is us. Looking at it like some trashy broad instead of like some beautiful bride. Instead of the purity that you give us by washing us clean with your blood that you shed on the cross. We look at ourselves as filthy and damaged. Like some kind of charity shop knickknack that will probably sit on that shelf forever. Yet Scripture tells us a very different story where you, though rich in every way in heaven, walked away from all of that just so that you could have us. And so, Lord, I pray that we could see ourselves the way you do. And in that, Lord, not to get high and mighty about ourselves, but rather to fall in love with you in the way that you deserve to be fallen in love with because of the great love you've shown us. And then in that, Lord, may we hand ourselves over to you for others. With, as you teach us here, a willing mind and a ready heart. So Lord, speak to us now. Draw us to that place and use us, Lord, in ways so far beyond ourselves. All we can do is be amazed and say thank you. And Lord, as well, I pray right now, if there be anyone in this room who maybe for the first time in their life they realize that this all starts with a choice because love is always with a choice. And the choice is whether to accept this love you offer us, the dignity you want to shower us with, the price you paid at the cross. And tonight, in this room, if there's anyone who has not said yes to that gift, by the power of your Holy Spirit, show them their need to say yes. That they could say, on this night, I accepted the gift of Jesus. And beloved, please hear me now. I'm going to pray a prayer. I ask you to listen. 
And at the end of it, if you agree with this prayer, then you want to say yes tonight. I ask you to say a confident and resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that prayer be my prayer. Let those words be mine. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, you know I'm not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. I've done wrong, thought wrong, felt wrong. And you as a righteous judge punish wrong. But in your perfect love for me, you came down to earth to pay my price, leaving all of your glory and your splendor in heaven to walk as a man. And as you walked as a man, you died on that cross so that all of the wrong, all of the sin of all man could be paid for, including mine. And there you died. So that I know that my verdict died with it. My shame died with it. My dishonor died with it. And you rose from the grave, just like Scripture promised, to offer me a new life now, no longer under the cloak of that dishonor, no longer under the overcast of that ignominy, but rather now to be loved, to be adored, to be honored with the dignity that only you can give. And with all of this, you simply ask if I would receive this gift, confessing you, Jesus, as my Savior and Lord. And I say, yes, I confess you, Jesus, as the price that was paid for my sins. And I hand myself to you now for you to do with my life what brings, what brings you pleasure and gives me that life of dignity in your name. So, I may not understand everything, but I know this much. I give you me. And that's the only really right thing to do. So, here I am. I'm yours. In Jesus' name. If you agree, and I know your heart might be beating, but that choice is yours to make. Just give a confident resounding, Amen. Lord, I pray now for those who have made that prayer tonight. You cement in them that conviction. Strengthen them now, Lord. May we walk in you as you deserve. Lord, we give ourselves to you for others. Develop in us, Lord, we pray. That willing mind, or that yeah, that willing mind and that ready heart. Jesus in your name. Amen.